So we're going to be in the minor prophets from now until Advent with just occasional breaks. Why are we going to be why are we going to be in the prophets? Probably none of you's favorite book of the Bible is one of the minor prophets. Probably none of your favorite chapters in the Bible or favorite verses in the Bible is from Amos or Obadiah. Probably some of you have never heard these names before in your life in reference to anything other than other people's names. It's actually in the Bible. So why are we studying the prophets? You know, typically we like to go, we like to, go to Genesis and Exodus. We like to look at the historical books. There's fun stories and, and interesting characters. Or we like to go, we like to head into, for good reason, the New Testament. The stories of Jesus, the, the letters of Paul and the other apostles. But in the middle of our Bibles, there's this like, what is it? It's this canyon, right? It's this, do I want to go down there? I know Psalms, I know Genesis, I know these are my favorite things, right? We put these up on our walls, we post these on our social media feeds. Like these are the places we like. And then you go into this, this dark crevasse and you think, do I want to go down there? Am I going to like this? Well, I don't know if you're going to like it or not. I, actually, I do know. You're probably not going to like all of it. You heard the story Jeremiah read, right? Amos was talking to the king of Israel and the, the high priest of Israel, and they're saying, Amos, go home before we send you in pieces home. Like, people don't love the prophets. Are we going to like this? You know, it's like... In our Bibles, you got, it's like a Summerfest scene, right? It's like a Summerfest stage. You got this stage where you got maybe something like Fleetwood Mac or some kind of old suite. I'm comfortable with that thing. And then you got Taylor Swift over here, and that sounds fun and inviting and exciting. Or one of the bands with one in their name, One Direction, One Republic, one of, one of those guys. And then you've got this other thing, kind of like where it, there's certain kind of scary people heading down this other path to what sounds like uh, cars being dismantled by tortured cats. And you're like, I don't know if I want to go down that path. And did you listen to what Jeremiah read? There's some stuff in there that you're like, ooh, ah, this is not the part of the Bible that I come to church on Sunday to, uh, to wash my, my mind in, right? So this is going to be interesting. So today, all I'm going to try to do is familiarize us with the story of the prophets in the timeline of Israel and also a little bit with, of their basic message. And, and actually, of course, I mean, the prophets are in the Bible. They're important for us. They're essential for us. The last four weeks we've been in the, uh, the book of 1 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, he talks about how the sacred writings, O Timothy, that are able to make you wise to the salvation that is through faith in Christ Jesus. And what is he referring to when he says sacred writings? He's talking about Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Obadiah. When Jesus resurrected, Jesus meets with his disciples and, he, he, and they're all like, I, what, we had no idea. And he says, let me explain it to you. How does he explain it to him? He says, let's go back into the Bible. He says, listen, everything written about me in the law and Amos, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Micah, and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to, to understand the Scriptures. As we go into Amos, Micah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, I hope that the Lord will open your minds. I hope you'll make that your prayer because this is an important and essential part of our Bibles and, and an essential part of our faith. The basic message of the prophets is, uh, friends, gravity exists. If you're going to go up, you're going to come down. There will be a reckoning for the decisions you have made. 
There will be consequences for the lifestyle you have chosen. In the, in, the, in the scene of the prophets, it's like, I want you to keep this, this image in view. Israel is sort of like a, a drunk person on a roof at a party, going like this and backing away from the ledge. What are they about to do? They're about to see if they can fly. right? And the prophets are saying, you cannot, fro- you cannot fly. You are a drunk fool who, if you continue this course of action, is going to at least surely injure yourself gravely. Please come down. So now, to orient ourselves, let's just find out who is this person up on the roof flapping their arms in an inebriated state? <laughs> Why does anybody care if they make the jump or not? And how they get up on the roof, that's going to be important for us as well. So let me tell you just briefly the story of how we got to the canyon part of our Bibles. How did we get to the prophets and what's going on there? All right, so all of my stories start with the Garden of Eden. So God... Right, God created all things and it was all very good and he planted a garden in Eden and he put Adam and Eve in there to work it and to keep it. And this was a very good place to be, but of course, did Adam and Eve work it and keep it? No. As soon as we turn the page, Satan tempts them and they immediately sin and they're cast out of the good, the good place. They're cast out of the good place where God's presence was and where he said he gave them the job to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know where that's from, actually? Habakkuk. Pretty cool. So that was actually God's plan in the Garden of Eden, to, to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. And Adam and Eve were going to do that. But then they sinned, and they were put into exile. An important word there. Cast out and exiled from that good place. Well, God didn't just wash his hands of his good vision. He called a guy named Abraham. And Abraham he called out. And then, you know, kind of the story's complicated. I'm not going to tell the whole thing this morning. But uh, Abraham's descendants, to them, God gives his law. We just kind of wrangled about that in the book of Galatians. But he also gives them this thing, this tabernacle. And the tabernacle is filled with images of the Garden of Eden. He was giving Israel a sort of an Eden seed that they were going to take to the land of promise plant it, and back on track. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. So they get this seed. It's not all smooth sailing, you can imagine. It's a very interesting story. But a kingdom is birthed. And there's a king named King David. And this kingdom was supposed to be the place, Israel was supposed to be the place where God's presence on earth was met. Right, all the nations, all the tribes, they've all got false gods. They've all got lies at the center of their lives. And here alone is the true God who has made His presence known to His people. But then, of course, as the story of the Old Testament goes on, it's Eden all over again. God's people sin, they are unfaithful to Him, and they are sent into exile again. And this is what the prophets were sent to uh, avoid, to help Israel avoid, and also then address. But God's vision, God's vision for Israel was to be a shining shalom. I like that phrase. I want you to keep that in mind here because it's going to make his uh, anger and and the harsh things he says about Israel and Judah, it's going to make it more understandable. They were supposed to be the, the thing that God's shalom, you know this word? It's, it, it's this old, old Testament Hebrew word. It just means that the, the awesome, flourishing peace of God, 
known and met in our lives. Like if you ever think about your top five greatest experiences in life, that's a sample of the shalom that God wanted His people to enjoy and then to spread. You are the light of the world. This is what they were supposed to be. People will see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. That's what they were supposed to be and they were supposed to do. But that's not what they were. Now, that's kind of the story. Let me kind of plug it into actual history stuff for a minute with us. Uh, so we live in uh, what year? 2023, right? So rewind about 4,000 years. That's when God calls Abraham out of the Chaldean Empire. You can go over to the, you know, spin the map in your mind. I didn't, I didn't, I thought, let's do some imagination stuff. So spin the globe in your mind, find the Mediterranean Sea, then over on the eastern edge of it, the, 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 the Palestine, the promised land, the nation of Israel. Right? So you can go there and you can find artifacts of the Chaldean Empire. You know, this is a real place, real stuff that happened, four, but a long time ago, 4,000 years ago. So God calls Abraham. About 3,500 years ago is when the people of Israel were down in Egypt. Egypt's a place, you know, you've heard of Egypt, right? So Egypt, uh, they, they come out of Egypt about 3,500 years ago to uh, follow Moses and come back into the land of promise with the seed of the garden. And about 3,000 years ago, so 1,000 B.C., is when God kind of kicks, uh, puts together the kingdom under King David. Now, King David, I keep, there's, those of you who know the Bible know that there was a king before David, there was kings after David, but David's a very important king because David received something called the Davidic covenant. He got this covenant. So Abraham got a covenant, Moses kind of got, he, he, he uh, got a covenant for Israel from God, and then David gets a covenant. Now, David's covenant is very important because it means that the promises that God made to the world through Abraham and Israel was going to come to, going to, come to Israel and then come to the world through David's house, through the household of King David. So if you had faith in God, you were going to be loyal to the tribe of Judah and the household of David. That's an important thing to understand because what happens next in the story of Israel, about 100 years after David's king, is that the kingdom of Israel splits. Now this is where, this, I know this gets confusing. If you're not already completely lost, just look it up on Wikipedia. Uh, but let me just give you, so this is confusing a little bit because I've been talking about the kingdom of Israel. Now the kingdom of Israel splits off and is a separate thing from the kingdom of Judah. So so. Palestine, Israel, it kind of looks like this. It's actually not much bigger than Wisconsin. So if you kind of imagine Wisconsin a little bit, you know, it's like half of Wisconsin. And, then, and nine of the tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, the nine go north, and about three or so, it's a little mixed up, but about three or so stay south. And now they're on two timelines. So now you've got the kingdom of Israel, which is not the nation of Israel. It's just, so the kingdom of Israel is up here. And they're all bad. Because why? Because they left the Davidic covenant. They said, we don't believe in the covenant promise word of God. So the very first thing they do, I'm not going to tell this whole story, but those of you who know your Bibles a little bit, the very first king thing that the very first king of the nation of Israel does is he sets up golden calves at temples at the bottom and top of their land. Now, all I will say about that story is that references back to probably the worst, dumbest thing that ever 
the Israelites did in their entire history. And he says, that's how we're going to start things. So all those kings are bad. They last about 175 years, and then they are obliterated by the Assyrian Empire. Obliterated. There's not a trace there. The sands of time, they're gone. Nobody has ever been from or heard of those tribes ever again. Those are the people to whom Amos and Micah are writing. A completely faithless people, but God who is faithful continues to send them prophets. Continues to send them prophets to bring them back. Now the second timeline we're following is that of the kingdom of Judah, which again is like three-ish tribes down in the southern part of Israel. Now, they've got the Davidic covenant, so they've got people who God is working there to kind of protect. And Any of the good stories in the, that part of your Bible all happen in Judah. Josiah, Hezekiah, some of the, the good kings there, they're all down in Judah. But they're influenced by the nation of Israel, by the kingdom of Israel. Because, as we'll see in a minute, the kingdom of Israel is actually doing pretty good for itself for a while. They're, they're exporting more than they're importing, if you get my meaning. And so the kingdom of Judah is like mixed. Some kings are really good. Some kings are really bad. They last for a little while longer. About 350 years they exist as a kingdom before the Babylonian Empire comes and takes them into exile for about a generation and then some of them come back. This is Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bibles. Fast forward, we go to the New Testament. All the Jews like all the Jews that are all the people in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Those are all descendants of those guys. The Judah kingdom that went to Babylon and some of them came back. And the books that we'll be looking at, Habakkuk and Obadiah, are written to Judah after Israel fell, so in that kind of next window. We'll, we'll see what's going on there. All right, so let me just summarize this sort of overview of what the prophets, where the prophets are in the Bible. I know you probably could have Wikipedia this or watched a video on it, but you weren't gonna, so we're doing it here, okay? So we're gonna get to it in a second. But let me just summarize that the prophets were writing to a people, to the people, get this, who alone belonged to God and were called by him to do his mission. The prophets were writing to the people who alone belonged to God and his mission. And the prophets were writing to the people who rejected that identity and that mission. I want you to understand that that is the context for the prophets because sometimes we can go into the prophets and we can think, well, this is just God when he gets up on the wrong side of the bed. Right? Because we've all interacted with a, a father figure who is sometimes nice and sometimes not nice. And so we think, well, the sometimes nice father figure is back in like the parts where he's like, yeah, he's throwing money around or whatever, and then the parts where he's Jesus. And then we look at the prophet's part like, oh man, that's, that's you know, the father figure after he's had a couple beers or something. Like, I maybe need to steer low clear of this guy. But that's not the context for the prophets. The context for the prophets is that Israel was supposed to be the people through whom salvation came to you and me. All the stuff we've been singing about was never going to come to us because Israel who were called to be those people who shone the light and knowledge of God to the world, said, nah. And so that's why the prophets are hot and bothered. That's why we're going to encounter some of the themes that we talk about uh, here in the prophets that we don't normally talk about in polite church times. 
All right, so how did Israel, though, get in this situation where they've got prophets coming at them saying, thus says the Lord, you're going down. How did they get in this situation? And this is going to be important because uh, we sometimes find ourselves in similar situations. So let me start with just what was actually, what was God's plan? What was, what was the actual plan here for Israel? And if I could summarize it just briefly, God wanted them to uh, enjoy true worship. So to, they were going to focus on and worship and get to know the one true God. And that true worship was, was supposed to be protected by godly leaders. Godly leaders you know, who protected the Sabbath, who said no commerce on the Sabbath, who protected the, the sacrifices, who were resourced by the tithes and offerings of the people. This true worship was going to produce, as just like for us, as they reflected on the nature of God, as they reflected on the stories of God, they were going to say, I'm going to put more faith in him. I'm going to trust him more. I'm going to trust his word. When he says that he's going to do a thing, I'm going to trust it so that I don't necessarily need to do that thing for myself right now. I'm going to trust him. When he says, do this commandment and don't do this bad thing, even though I want to do the bad thing sometimes, I'm going to trust him and I'm going to do the good thing. How much better would our lives be if that was the way we operated? If we're like, all the things that God says I don't want to do, I shouldn't do, I'm not going to do those things. I'm only going to do the good things. So this was God's plan. All the wisdom that he, that he wants to convey to them for how to live was going to, they were going to get that because they were worshiping him truly. So they're going to have real faith. And that was going to produce a culture, uh, homes, uh, uh, congregations that were stable. That were stable, not because they were perfect or flawless or even that great, right? But remember, the, the worship of God was built around our failure. I sin, and so I bring my offering. It was built around His grace and mercy. It was, it's not perfect, flawless law-keeping that God ever intended. What God always intended was for us to have a resilient faith. So that if... if Crops are bad, we trust him. When crops are good, we celebrate him. When we can't seem to beat that sin, we trust him. When we seem to be sin-free for a little while, you know, he, we talk to our wives and, and they, you know, our spouses. So this was God's vision. And that sense of stability and faith was going to produce righteousness and justice between us. It was going to produce a society-wide sense of progress and flourishing in a good direction it was going to produce joy it was going to produce shining shalom and the earth would be filled from that place with the light of the knowledge of the glory of the lord like the waters cover the sea but that's god's design which of course was great and good but it was not what happened israel departs from that this is uh, that word we've looked at in galatians a couple times transgression they got off the path they left God's design. And the first thing they did was idolatry. So rather than true worship, they're doing false worship. We've talked about this in our marriage class. False worship is really just me saying, I want this thing now. What can I use to get it? I need to get Baal. I need to get Moloch. I need to get tech stocks. I need to work extra hours. What do I need to get it? And we elevate those things in our lives. That's what idolatry is. It's really faith in myself and in my ability to get the tools I need to accomplish the goals that I have for myself. Now that idolatry was not, rather than being opposed by the right leaders, it was encouraged by greedy leaders. 
Leaders who could skim a little bit off of all of our efforts, who could make use of our energies. Leaders who could corral us to vote for them when the time came or support their policies as needed. And those leaders were, of course, then compromised. They were compromised leaders. Now, I want you to think carefully here because everything you're expecting me to say is going to sound bad. And that's where the prophets get us. Because these compromised leaders led the nation of Israel and later the nation of Judah into prosperity. Because compromise is how you broker peace deals. Which is how you broker trade deals. Which is how you get your economy to grow. And so when you go back and you look in the rubble of the bad nation of the kingdom of Israel, you find expansive horse breeding operations and expansive vineyard operations. And you find timber and artifacts from all over the known world at that time. It was a season of great affluence. But then what happens when a people becomes affluent? When you've got money in the bank to deal with your problems, who don't you need to inquire of too often, right? If I can write a check for it, I don't need to pray about it. And so the people of Israel, thanks to this affluent season, they become less and less concerned with God and His ways. This is why like five, six, seven hundred years later, Jesus comes and He says, listen, you can either serve Yahweh or you can serve money. And he's just knocking on the heads of all the Israelites at that point saying, what happened in our prophets? What did our prophets say? And now that, that redirected faith, right? So what does is, what is their worship of God become? It becomes hypocrisy. It becomes just a social class marker, right? We've seen this in our, in our parents' or grandparents' generation. Like, we've seen this in recent history. People just go to church to show off how they're dressed, to catch up on chit-chat and gossip, to be seen and to see... And that's what it became in Israel at this time. It was hypocritical. And what was going on out there? What was happening with the poor? What was happening with the oppressed? Ah. Society-wide injustice was condoned. It was tolerated. It was okay. Everybody just sort of looked away. And this is what the prophets are, are saying God is going to judge. Now, this is probably the part of the prophets that we get a little queasy with. Like God... They're being bad, shouldn't he send somebody nice to say, hey, stop being bad? Well, that's what the prophets are. How many times are they going to do this, though? How many prophets get to come? So God's going to judge these people. But let me just think about this for just a second. God judging. What, what image comes to mind for you? A boot? A fist? Lightning bolts? What do you think it happens? I, I want to paint a different picture for you. Now, God is certainly judging. He's directing all of these things. But, friends, uh, those of you who, who can track history a little bit, destruction is in the fabric of empire. Destruction is built into sin. It's built into idols. We know this. You're going to follow Baal to, to prosperity and shining shalom? No, you're going to follow Baal to degradation and shame and justice and ruin. You're going to follow that sin to somehow a better life for yourself? You're going to follow that sin to destruction and shame and ruin. God's not up there zapping people or stomping on them. He set the thing up. He is directing this. He is over those operations. 
In fact, in, in Amos chapter 4, if, you've, if you're there, if you're still there, I mean, I haven't referenced it in a while, so I understand if you're not. But if you're still there, look at Amos chapter 4, verse 6. God says, I, I gave you clean list of teeth in all your cities, uh, by meaning starvation, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Look at verse 8. You see that same phrase at the end of that verse? Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence. But if you look at the end of that verse, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. God is directing and allowing this judgment in order to get them back. So whatever your idea of God and his judgment is, you've got, to, you've got to reframe it as this is a way for him to get us back, not to push us away, but to bring his people back. One of the uh, fundamental stories of the people of Israel, kind of one of their sort of origin stories, was the difference between uh, their father Jacob, so one of Abraham's, their father Jacob, and his older brother Esau. So in their sort of self-identity, their, their, their like sort of myth of, their, of who they were as a people, they would say, we're Jacob's children. Because, because listen to this. Esau, who was the firstborn, Isaac's firstborn, he was going to be the one who would get all the blessings, all the stuff, all the promises were going to be his. But you remember this story? He came in from hunting one day. And Jacob had been cooking up some chili. And Esau smelled the chili. And Esau said, I will trade you my birthright to the blessings, the promises, the glory for that bowl of chili. And it was part of the, you know, the Hebrew, the Israelite mindset. Like, we're the, Esau traded that for chili. We're Jacob's children. We, we get all the good things. And we're not dumb like Esau. But now the prophets are saying, what? No, you, you're, you do the same thing. You, Jacob, and Jacob's people are being Esau. You are trading. You're shining shalom for a sense of security and stuff. You just want bigger walls around your property and pointier glass on the top of it. You want thicker bank accounts and insurances for your insurances. And you want the, the newest model of that and the latest version of this. But then, as you know, I mean, this is not necessarily overly sophisticated analysis here. A culture of fixated on security becomes a culture of fear. A culture of exclusivity. A culture of injustice. And a culture that's full of greed is going to be driven by comparison. Right? You walk, oh, what are they wearing? A comparison, competition, cheating, And any, in both of those kind of cultures require slaves. They require losers. They require casualties. But what's the message of the prophets? Gravity exists. 
If you trade the covenant love of the true God, your God, for the useful gods of the world, you're going to be trading real peace and joy for just stuff that seems but never satisfies. You want to make that trade? There's consequences to it. And one of the most beautiful and poetic points in any of the prophets, the prophet Jeremiah records the Lord saying this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, in order to hew out for themselves cracked clay jars that can't hold water. The prophets are saying that is not a trade you want to make. So I'm not even preaching it. I'm just telling you what the prophets are saying to Israel. So let me just conclude this morning by helping us think for a second about how should we think about the prophets? How should we use these prophets, right? Because the prophets are not writing to us. The nation of Israel did not somehow morph into the nation of America. I know that there's some people that, that think maybe that sort of happened, that all of the words to Israel now are words to us because we're the new favored nation under God or something, but that's not a thing. So we've got to translate this. This was written to them then, there. And we've got to understand this and filter this through Jesus and the, the full and true revelation of all things in Him. So we've got to understand how should we use the prophets that are not writing to us. And I want you to even rethink how you think about a prophet. Like, what, what, do, you think a pro, what do you think Amos was like? You know, was he just sort of like, you know, in his, like, a dark corner of his hut, like, throwing tablets on the ground or, like, scratching out, like, chicken entrails or something like that? We tend to think of these guys as, like, uh, oracles, predictors, they were just like, you know, at a party and all of a sudden, you know, they're doing this thing. and Everybody's like, oh, you know, grab a pen. What's he going to say next? They're much more like preachers. Like when you go to Amos, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Micah, you're actually not going to find anything that hasn't already been said in Isaiah, in Deuteronomy by Moses. Like they're, they're just explaining, they're applying Scripture in most cases to the situation that God's people find themselves in. They're more like preachers pointing at stuff than they are that other thing, okay? So how should we use them? We should let them point us to what they're pointing at so we see it with them. They're pointing us to, first of all, see the unity of idolatry and injustice. The unity of idolatry and injustice. Sometimes we can experience the broken world like it's a, it's a random, accidental, unconnected, just shattered thing. But actually, it's all connected. It's like a, a domino master design. You know, we can get frustrated. We can, say, we can look at the politics. We can say, oh, the politics are so bad. Politics are bad. bad. I think we'd all agree. Polit- we don't like the politics. Politics are bad. We can look at some of the other stuff going on. We say, oh, the gender dysphoria stuff. I don't like that. I don't like what the, what's going on with that. I mean, so we look at mass incarceration. Well, that, that's bad over there. That's, I, don't, I don't like that. Oh, the di- rise of diabetes. Oh, I don't like that. Rise of uh, opioid epidemic. I don't like that. All the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel. I don't like that stuff. What's going on in my life? I don't like that stuff. And what the prophets would say, they would say, this is all connected. This is all connected. All of the injustice that you see in the society, 
all the lies, all the collusion, all the cheating and the backstabbing and all of the bad things it's all connected to. All the injustice in society is connected to idolatry in the church. Idolatry and injustice are all a piece. Idolatry, collusion, greed, faithlessness, injustice. That's going to be a hard thing for us to reflect on. The second thing is to see the anger of the loving God. And this is part that disturbs us when we encounter the prophet's message. But friends, God really cares. What's something you get angry about? Why do you get angry? I get angry because I'm, I'm, I care about it so much. God really cares. He, he wants his saving light to reach to all the places on the planet. He really wants that to happen. And every single person on the planet is either his covenant child who he loves or somebody that he wants to be his covenant child. So whenever he sees violence or abuse or neglect, how should he feel about that? How would you feel if somebody you loved was experiencing violence or abuse or neglect? God is all 100% perfect, eternal, absolute love. And for that reason, not but also, but for that reason, he is very angry sometimes. And that anger, I want you to even think about this more, that anger is understood by the Old Testament people for the most part as good news. I was just reading this week in Psalm, Psalm 95. The psalmist starts saying like, oh, the birds of the heaven are going to rejoice and the, the sky is going to clap its hands and the trees are going to celebrate and the rivers are going to sing when God comes to judge the people. And you're like, what is going on? It's like a Disney movie. And then, like, well, they looked at the judgment of God and when he's going to come and do something to make things equal as a great, Beautiful expression of his love. And we're going to encounter that in these prophets. It might be a little bit challenging. But the thing that they most want us to see, the thing that every single page in the Bible is written to direct us to, is faith in Jesus. Every single word is all a piece, a slurry of getting us to put more of our confident hope and our willingness to obey on Messiah. They didn't know his name. We do. But everything is about faith in Messiah. You know, I want you to understand, you know, that when we look at the prophets, you can see them describing this world of sin and shame and injustice and lies. And you can, and you can see that God's angry, and you say, well, that's right. But the other thing that that counterbalances that is that God is faithful to his promise. All of his promises to bless his people and to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. So, so he's, he's angry. He's not going to destroy his people, though. How can these things be? How can there be all of this injustice and this angry God and also this promise to bless the world through his people? How can he be both? Here's the words of the Apostle Paul. How can he be both just, doing what's right, and the justifier of ungodly people, which is wrong. How can he be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? And that mystery, friends, is the center, the center 
of Israel's life. Right? Zoom in with me on the center of Israel's life, and it is the death of a lamb in the place of a sinner. That was their hope. That was their identity. We're the people for whom a lamb can stand in our place and we can be absolutely forgiven. That was their identity and that was their message. That's what Israel was called to carry was what became our salvation. And so the prophets are pointing them and us to hope in Christ. The prophets are here written for us so that we learn the real physics the real moral physics of life. There is a way that seems right to all of us, but the end of that way is going to be what? The end of that way is death. And so the prophets want us to wake up to that and return us to faith. Lynn, did you use this verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. All right, so we're starting a series on the prophets. Are we going to like this? <laughs> Are we going to like this? I just stumbled upon a, uh, an article about a YouTube channel called Cartnark. And I'm not, I didn't watch anything. I'm not author. I'm not like, a, you know, this doesn't have the imprimatur of the past or anything on it. But uh, apparently this is a YouTube channel where uh, a guy is sort of like watching to see if people return their carts to the... Uh, the cart return after the grocery shop, and then he confronts them if they didn't, and uh, hilarity ensues. But you know what happens? Uh, they get mad, right? They, they, like he's had people pull out firearms on him because he said, "Would you please return your cart?" To we don't like to have even our littlest indiscretions exposed and discussed, right? The whole, the whole point of that YouTube channel is that people want to feel righteous and they don't want that sense of righteousness to be at all modified. But that's what the prophet's jobs are. And so when Stephen in Acts 7, he looks back on the history of Israel, he says, which of the prophets did you not persecute? We're going to experience Amos and we're going to say, get rid of that guy. We're going to read it back and we're going to say, I don't like him. It's going to be a challenging thing, but it's something that we need to listen to because we need to stop pretending that we can live lives of minimal faith and that will be maximally satisfying. What God has made us to be and called us to become together is a good, beautiful, filling, and worthy thing. And so the prophets say, come on out from among them and be ye separate. Get away from the world and its gods and its promises and its ways and be what he made you to be. Be his. Let me just close this morning and say, do you want to be his? Do you want to be his? Or do you want to be theirs? Do I want to be like him or do I want to be like them? Do I want to be with them or do I want to be with him? And so I want you to make that your prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, we're here in Jesus' name, and we want to be his. We want to be yours. We are so thankful for the hope that the prophets speak of that has been delivered in him. And yet we also grieve, for we see that some of the same things that were 
that they railed against and that they preached against are present in our culture, in our churches, and even in our lives. Lord, we don't want them. We, we want to be yours. And so, Spirit, we turn ourselves over to you this morning. We ask that you would pour out the love of the Father into our hearts, that you would make us more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name and for his glory that we ask this. Amen.